nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. How are you? There's my dog. Oh, hey. Is it a boy or a girl? Boy. Oh, he is. That is so funny. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for asking me. Of, <laughs> of course. Well, yeah. So this is just going to be like, I just, I had sent you a rundown and we'll just kind of jump in if you're, if you're yeah. ready. Okay, sure. cool. Do you want to just start out by telling the listeners like who you are, a little bit about yourself, maybe some background, what you do? Okay. Yeah. So my name is Teresa and I'm a genetic counselor. Um, I live in Simsbury. I've got two kids, a 15 year old and a 13 year old. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Do you want me to talk about how I got to be a genetic counselor? Yeah. Like tell me what even is a genetics counselor? Like what a genetic (laughs) counselor, like what even is that? (laughs) I know sometimes I still don't know the answer to that one. Uh, (laughs) In theory, we're supposed to help families break down complicated genetic information. So all medical information is complicated, but genetic information is a little different because it affects, you know, depending what it is, it affects not just the patient, but other family members as well. Um, you know, it can go generations depending what we're talking about. Um, so yeah, our job is to help break it down to make it a little bit more understandable for people. And then in prenatal specifically, I think we help you know, guide through whatever the patient decides. So prenatal, you know, sometimes if there's a complicated anomaly, then it's getting people where they need to be, um, make sure the baby gets here as safe as possible. I know all sorts of different ways. Um, Yeah. So do you specifically work with prenatal? So you work, okay. Yep. Yep. So genetic counselors kind of, well, now it's changing all the time, but, um, you know, primarily it started out as a pediatric specialty. So people would be working with geneticists trying to diagnose kids. Um, sorry, let me let the dog out. Kids that have oh yeah, no problem. Genetic concerns, and then um, you know, talking to them about what that would mean. And then prenatal became probably the next the next step, and probably the most popular one for a very long time. You know, when people started doing amniocentesis and you know, just as medicine evolved and they found a need for um, people to help in that arena. And then cancer is the other big one that's probably most clinically, most people do cancer now or prenatal. Um, pediatric has kind of become less common. Okay. Cause you kind of, they're kind of catching, trying to catch things way early on. Is that the reason? Right. And now for cancer, um, well, when they discovered the BRCA one and two genes, you know, then it was genetic counselors role primarily was working with those families. And then there's also colorectal cancer genes that we've known about for a long time. And they would help work with those families. Um, But then as science has gotten smarter and genetic testing has gotten much more accessible and broader, there's a ton of different cancer genes. And so cancer genetic counselors, you know, will take family histories and look at what's in the family and then kind of your panels toward what's in a family. Um, and then if they find something, you know, then deciding who should be tested next and offering, you know, helping people figure out how to make that actionable. Like, yes, we might have this genetic change, but now what do we do? How can we protect ourselves? Okay. 
So I guess let's talk about how we know each other. It's yeah. so, <laughs> so kind of crazy. Um, so I had talked a little bit on the podcast before um, about what has gone on with my two pregnancies and the craziness that I feel like it is, but I feel like I never get to explain and I get question upon question. And like, when I talk about it, people have all these questions and I really don't have any answers to like anything. And I'm like, <laughs> well, maybe this or that, like, I have no clue. So, um, so anyway, I did. Well, maybe let's start off by talking about maternal fetal medicine. Like what okay. even, some people have not even ever heard of that. They don't know yeah. what that is. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. If you have a routine pregnancy, it's not you know, a lot of times you won't go see maternal fetal medicine. So maternal fetal medicine specialists are OBs who specialize in high-risk pregnancy. So they do an additional fellowship in just high-risk pregnancy um, and different offices handle it different. Some maternal fetal medicine specialists will do deliveries um, at St. Francis. Ours do not do deliveries. So some people will follow MFM with an MFM their whole pregnancy. So instead of having a general OB and coming to the specialist for consult, they will be followed by MFM the whole pregnancy and be delivered. At our hospital, our MFMs do consults and will help follow patients, but they don't do deliveries. Okay. Um, and so people come to MFM for different reasons, whether they're high risk for genetic conditions, chromosome problems, they saw something on ultrasound at their outside office. Um, sometimes they're there because mom has a medical concern like high blood pressure or okay. you know lupus or blood type can get you a trip to MFM but most MFMs do the prenatal diagnosis testing so the CBS or the amniocentesis and so that's where you usually find the genetic counselor because we'll counsel on those high risk patients okay where i literally i have so many questions okay go <laughs> it's for like it. insane <laughs> um first of all a lot of people some people that are pregnant listening to this or that are planning to get pregnant listening to this mm -hmm. or haven't had a baby yet. Um, and some people that have had pregnancies and they're just normal pregnancies and they never go to maternal fetal medicine. They have no clue, but it, I didn't even realize that you don't get many ultrasounds in a normal pregnancy. No. Right yeah. now. I've never dealt with this because I've never technically had <laughs> a normal pregnancy. <laughs> Although I've been very, very lucky and fortunate with the outcomes that I've, that I'm right. having, but yeah. So what, why is that? Like, I, obviously it's to check and, and you're high risk. So you're, but what is the difference between an ultrasound at your OB office or your midwife practice? Like I have, um, and then you like, what, what is the difference? What are they, how are they looking any different? So sometimes it's machine. Well, there's a, several things. So usually machines at an MFM practice will be like the more state-of-the-art machines than in a routine OB. Um, but the primary thing is the everybody who comes to MFM meets with a physician. So, you know, if you do an ultrasound in your routine OB office and the sonographer finds something abnormal, they're usually going to send that patient to MFM to confirm that that's what's actually happening. And then the doctor will talk to the patient at that time about the finding um, instead of like being called later in the afternoon and saying, hey, it looks like there might be a heart defect. We want you to go see this specialist. You know, we can do it all at that appointment. Okay. Uh, so that, and they are looking like the check and every office is a little different, but um, 
Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine does have general guidelines for what needs to be evaluated on an ultrasound. And then you customize it, you know, certain offices customize it to the way they want. So our sonographers probably have, I would say 50 to 70 views that they need to get to the satisfaction of the MFM before they can say that's a normal scan. When wow. you do that scan. So when they're there looking, they're looking, there's all these little things that they have to see in the right plane, like with this reference point, you know. And the difference between that was like, would be like at a regular OB office, it'd probably be like maybe 20 or something, right? In comparison. Right, right. Okay, right. so it's more of like a fine tooth comb of an ultrasound. Correct, and it has the provider right there reviewing it in real time versus on the back end. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And then just to kind of compare in a normal pregnancy, you'd have an ultrasound, what, at like eight weeks to confirm you're pregnant and see a little gummy bear. Yes. Gummy and bear. then you're 20 <laughs> weeks and then that's it. Well, so I think there should be your dating. So let's make sure, so that's your eight week one. Okay. Let's make sure your due date is right. And let's make sure there's just one baby. Um, so those are things we can see that early. But like you said, it is a gummy bear. It's real tiny. Um, so there's not much more they can see. And then I like for people to have a scan around 12 weeks where they can look at that thickness behind the back of the baby's neck. If that's thicker, it increases risk for chromosome problems and then also other complications. And then you can also see there's some major birth defects that you can see at that time, um, which you can also see at 20 weeks, but they're the ones you can see are, you know, they're bad. So if they're there, we would rather find them at 12 weeks than 20. So sure. ideally you get a dating, a 12-ish week and a anatomy scan. And like a lot of normal OBs do the 12-ish scan to the 12-ish week? Yes, but what's happened is because of cell-free DNA, so because of the blood test that screens for Down syndrome, so the old fashioned blood test that screened for Down syndrome, you had to do an ultrasound as part of it. Oh. So there certain, um, they measured that nuchal translucency measurement and then they did markers in the blood to give a risk assessment for Down syndrome and also for trisomy 18. Um, so that one you had to have an ultrasound. But then when you came to cell free, we don't need ultrasound to do cell free. It's totally independent. It's doing a different thing. So people kind of felt like, well, we're already checking for Down syndrome. Why do we have to do that scan? Okay. Um, so some offices do it, some don't. It just just depends. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just was blown away by, because like with my, I'm so accustomed to, okay, we have 97 ultrasounds every pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just always living there. I feel like, um, yeah. which like for me, and I've said on the podcast before, so people have heard me say it. I mean, it's really nice. It's such a peace of mind. I love it. I get to see the baby, but then every time I walk in there, it's just another reminder of like, this just isn't normal. So yeah. am I going to walk in here this time and it's going to be something? Like, yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, so let's get into like a little bit about what this has, like how we met, like what this has been like, um, you know, have, I guess in your words, maybe you could tell people what is, what happens with me. <laughs> I don't still know what happened with yours. <laughs> you're a mystery um is that crazy like it what? Is crazy, actually like it, most people do not have your experience um 
which is good, even though you're having, you know, had good outcome last time, hopefully good outcome this time. Um, I don't know why your blood work is coming back this way. I can't figure it out. Um, so what, so what exactly is it? So my blood work comes back both, like both the exact identical time. Weird. Yes. So what yep. is, it? what is it saying to you? Like if you, you looked at it, what is it saying? Well, I mean, so it's saying that both times they said on your chromosome third, well, not your, on the chromosome 13, something looks off. They don't give us a lot of detail. So they don't say it looks like there's, you know, extra or missing or a tiny piece extra missing. You know, they don't tell us, they just tell us it involves 13. Okay. So, and that's what that atypical finding is. So, you know, well, let me talk about normal. So okay. let me talk about cell-free DNA in general. Okay. Come, how yours is a, a mystery. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what cell-free is doing, there are some of the placental DNA just kind of sloughs off and goes into mom's circulation. And so they finally figured out how to use that um, in a generally good way. Usually it's pretty accurate. So placenta and baby should have the same genetic information. And so what they're looking for is these uh, full extra missing chromosomes. So we should have two of every chromosome in our body, get one from your mom, one from your dad. Babies can get an extra or a missing. Um, most common extra is Down syndrome, which is an extra chromosome number 21, okay? Babies can also have an extra chromosome 18 or extra 13, and that's our whole, the entire chromosome. So it's a lot of genetic material. Um, those two conditions, when babies have them, they usually don't survive. So they may survive to be born, but they usually don't live more than a few hours, days, weeks, months. All right. Always exceptions, but in general, yep. pretty severe outcome. So the way the cell-free works is it uses mom's blood and it sequences the DNA and tags it for those chromosomes that you can get extra or missing. All right. And it should be seeing a balance because there's two, right? Yep. So you know, when they measure the dose, for lack of a better word, it should come out even. Well, if they measure it and 21 is up here, then mom most likely doesn't have Down syndrome. And so the assumption is the 21 is coming from the baby. Okay, that extra 21. All right. So if there's a clear abnormal, then that's called high risk. So if the 21, the ratio is just way off, then we know it's a true high risk and that'll come back at like a, you know, 99% chance the baby has Down syndrome or trisomy 13 or whatever the chromosome up there is. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Totally. Um, and then they're usually right. Um, you know, because it is that full, full jump, you know, it's like yeah. a true. Okay. Then, um, when we get these atypicals, what happens is it's not in balance, but it's not over the threshold of out of balance. So it's somewhere in this gray zone, right? Um, so atypical findings generally increase risk for mosaicism, right? So mosaicism just means some of the cells have normal chromosomes and some have the extra, okay? So when that happens, it's like there'll be enough extra to move it up, but not enough extra to move it all the way up here. All right. So that's the atypical findings are generally what we're thinking about is could there be mosaicism? Okay. Um, usually atypical findings are normal. Um, we see it a lot for the X. So because mom has two X's, so women should have two X's, men should have an X and a Y. 
there are situations where babies, girls can have two X, sorry, have three X's or could have a missing X. So sometimes we'll see, but moms can also kind of, some of our cells lose X's over time. It's not bad, it's not a problem, but it can skew those results. So a lot of times we see atypical for X. Um, so anyway, so for the- saying that when there's a girl baby, you most likely see that atypical finding over a boy baby. Yeah, for the X we do. I have had atypical for the Ys too. Now, luckily, knock on wood, wherever it is, most of my atypicals, the babies do not have anything. For those patients that have gone on to get diagnostic testing, the babies have been fine. Um, you know, whatever chromosome it's atypical for. Okay. Often is happening is the placenta might have changes that the baby actually doesn't have. And because the blood we're looking at actually placenta, not fetal, sometimes that can happen. So baby can be normal, but placenta might have changes. Um, and that will cause the blood work to look off, but not enough off to be a true high risk. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. So okay. special because you had it twice for the same thing. And that's unusual. Um, you know, it's trying to figure out why, what is going on that's flagging the 13 on two separate tests. Yes, um, when we, you came up with the idea, obviously, of testing my chromosomes to see right, anything, right. and then nothing. Nothing, which is good, um, but it didn't give us an answer. <laughs> so weird. So, it's so weird, and I would not recommend Natera for you in the future. You had Natera both times, right? Yeah, both times in the beginning. And I was really skeptical at the second one. I was like, I had such a nightmare with it. And they were just like, there's no way. There's <laughs> no way that it's going to happen again because of how that turned out. And yeah. then sure enough, but it's really just such an odd thing because like, and now we know, like we went through the ultrasounds and, and now that I'm like to almost 27 weeks, like they've seen a, a lot right. in her that they feel very confident about. So every time right. I go, I've trisomy 13. Uh, we know that. And yeah. could there be something on the 13 that we can't? No, yes, but I don't think it's likely. Um, and we're following you for growth, right? Yeah, like I have yeah. an appointment on Thursday. I live there practically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's because if the placenta does have some sort of chromosome difference with the third, like if it does, if there is a mosaic placenta, it increases the risk a little bit that the placenta won't do its job later in the pregnancy. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's why we follow for growth is the risk is small, but it's one of those things we really don't have a tangible number. And so why not check? It's just ultrasound and ultrasound has no risk. So that is so, so what actually I did have, I guess, to kind of jump around, what is the difference between an amnio and a CVS test? Okay. So CVS test is, um, looking at the placenta. All right. So the CVS we do in the first trimester. So around that 11 to 14 weeks okay. and get placental tissue. And because placenta and baby are generally the same, you know, it gives us information about the baby. And that's that big needle that goes right into your stomach. Well, so CVS is either going to be a needle that goes through your stomach or it's going to be through your cervix, like a pap smear. Oh God. <laughs> I oh. know. Most people say they're not that bad, but they are, um, 
yeah, they're a little more, a little less straightforward than amnio because the placenta can be in different places. So if the placenta is very accessible, it's a relatively straightforward procedure. But if we get a placenta that's kind of like in the back or way up here, it can be harder to get to. Okay. Um, but in a situation of atypical for anything, um, CVS is not recommended because if we are testing the placenta and we see mosaicism in the placenta, then we're still gonna have to do an amnio to figure out what's happening in the baby. So with an amnio, that's when we go through the belly again, this one is 16 weeks or later. And with this, we're getting the fluid. So, you know, the baby's swimming around in the, well, swimming, baby's around, you know, in the amniotic fluid. <laughs> and they'll take some of that fluid and in the fluid are the baby cells. And so if we see that mosaicism in the baby cells, then we know it's what the baby has. Okay. okay. But if we do a CVS and it's mosaic, and then we do an amnio and it's normal, then we know baby's fine, but placenta has this. Oh, okay. So you would monitor the growth of the baby because the placenta might not do its job later. Right, right, exactly. So wow. when we get a cell-free result that's saying chance for mosaicism is higher, is really not recommended to do a CVS because we want to know about the baby. Okay, uh, so you're, you would no, recommend- we don't, and then have to do two procedures because both procedures have a risk for miscarriage. So you don't want to- What is that risk? With CVS, we quote around a 1%. Um, with amnio, we quote around a one in 300. Both are probably less. I mean, the numbers are kind of old. Um, updated numbers are probably closer to one in a thousand for amnio. And you're saying of miscarriage? Of miscarriage, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so that- that would definitely be like a big decision for a mom to make. Correct. Because Correct. I remember going in for the first time. I didn't see you guys the first time. Um, I had, I was sent to another maternal fetal medicine with her and I had seen the, they had me come in. I saw the genetics counselor and she sat me down and she just was like, this is everything your baby could have. And you should probably have a CVS test. And I was like, <laughs> bawling my eyes out, like, Oh my God, this is my first yeah. pregnancy. I didn't even have my husband come at the time because I was- Oh geez, you're all alone. Yeah. I was like, no big deal. Like you don't need to take work out <laughs> for this. Like, no. Um, so yeah, it was just a nightmare, but that, yeah, that's a definitely such a scary thing, but they had retested my blood. So then that came back normal, just like this. Like we retested my blood and they were like, okay, well now the blood's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know it's different- um... Different technologies will reveal different things a little bit, um, but yeah, I don't know. I still can't figure it out. Do you have any other um, patients that you that you just are like, what is going on? Like, does that happen often in different scenarios? Yeah, I mean, there are this job. You never know what you're going to get when you come into work. I mean, most days, thankfully, are pretty straightforward. Um, most news I give is good news. Um, really? yeah, you know, so I call for us, all the cell-free DNAs that we do, I call them out. Um, so most of them are normal, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I will see the ones that aren't normal for patients that we did. And also like for you outside patients where it was drawn somewhere else. And then when they come to see us. Um, what is that process like like do you so you almost have to be like 
this genetics counselor that knows all this information and then almost like a like a therapist right <laughs> sometimes yeah yeah um, that must be so, like you kind of wear two hats like big hats yeah and it depends you know I think the hardest one well they're all hard but um you know sometimes I see people who had a stillbirth or during the pregnancy they lost the baby and I never even actually see the patient, but then when we get the results, I'm the one who calls them. And whether it's normal or abnormal, those are always really hard. Um, Cause like sometimes, you know, you want to give an answer, but then sometimes the answers we give make it so it's going to happen again. Or sometimes we don't have an answer and they just want an answer. And, you know, and they're people that I didn't have any relationship with. I just happened to be the one that calls out this test. Yeah. Um, so those, as far as telling people news that, yeah, it's hard when you haven't met somebody and you give them bad news or they don't even know who you are and you have to give bad news. Does um, it make it any easier if you know them though? Um, no, I guess it, no, it's only easier in the sense that they at least know I'll be calling. Like at least they kind of, I don't know. Somehow it feels, I hate those cold calls where nobody has any idea who I am. And I'm just like, Hey, um, I have this, like, have this news for you. Yeah. Yeah. So not easy. It doesn't really matter. And it doesn't get easier, you know? Um, is there, um, is there any information that like, how does that work as far as like, so you have this in some, you get this information, you get this like blood work in or whatever, is there a way or is there some information that you're like, I'm going to try to hold this back, but if they like pull it out of me, like I'll give it like, how does that work? Like, do you want to let all, like let the people know all the information or is there some that you try to shield them from? Like, how does that actually work? Um, in general, I would say I tell them everything because people are making choices. So they really need to know they need to know everything. And when I started out, I had a very, I think it was harder to be frank about how sometimes a prognosis is bad. I saw somebody this week and the baby, um, you know, the skull did not form. So it's very horrible. And thankfully we saw it early, but it doesn't matter. It's still their baby and it's still horrible news. And they had no idea it was coming in. They just were coming in for, you know, routine 12 week ultrasound. Um, and you don't want to be like, this is horrible, but it is. And yeah. then you, um, and probably such a fine line of like, not wanting to give them false hope, probably. Right. right. Okay. Yeah, to be like realistic, you know, in situations where the outcome is really not likely to be good. You know, you, I feel like you have to tell people that to say they're miracles happen and you can wish, you know, you can have any sort of hope you want to have, but realistically the outlook for this pregnancy is very poor. Um, and yeah. those are, um, yeah, I think some writers though dance around it, especially when they're newer and people need to know. So as much as they might never want to see my face again, that's okay. They don't want, like, I get it. Um, but I think they need to know what they're facing so they can make a plan. I would say just from experience too, like, so then, then, you know, we get, we get past all this stuff. And then I have an ultrasound where they had seen that bright spot on her heart. Mm 
Oh, yeah. Of course, I'm like, here we go again. Like, what more? Oh, I wish I didn't even look for that anymore. But I after that I can't remember I talked to you because I was like I have to call Teresa like I feel like she's (laughs) the only person that's actually going to talk to me because and that's what my point to this is like what you were just saying like they do dance around it and they did dance around it and I'm the type of person and I can't imagine anybody or any mother being in the situation like a position of any sort of like that wanting like I feel like it's just tell me, like, just yeah. tell me exactly what's happening. Do not, like, I don't want any fluff. I literally want to know. And yeah. definitely like, I, and I think they had even said to me, they were like, we don't, they had said in some way, this is like a, it had been a while now, but they had said in some way, like, we don't know how to explain. They didn't say it like this, but like, they, they didn't know how to explain it like you would be able to explain it. They didn't have those tools. They just knew it was there. Yeah. Cause that's their job. And your job is the other end of the spectrum. Right. The, the bright spot. Yeah. Yeah. And the, again, everything is when I started. So I graduated, um, from grad school in tooth, I think 2000. Um, and we didn't have cell-free DNA. Our ultrasounds were kind of crummy. Like they were good, we thought, but now they're much better. You know, the Down syndrome screening was horrible. Looking back, like we thought it was the best we had, but it um, it was in the second trimester and it only detected about 80% of babies with Down syndrome. Um, and so at that time, these little ultrasound markers were important because it would take that, you know, I would say, oh, your risk based on your blood work is one in 200. And we saw this bright spot. So now the risk is like one in 150. Um, and then people would have to make a choice on amnio because that's all there was. Um, so we're still looking for those same kind of soft, soft markers, like the bright spot in the heart. But now our screening tests are so much better that those have become less useful, but nobody will cross them up the list. We still check them. You know, there's some findings that are more important, but that one, and then um, I guess pylectasis is important. I think that one is the really the- What is is that one? So there's one where you can have dilated, a little bit of extra fluid on the kidneys, which almost always is nothing. But that one we follow in the third trimester to make sure nothing changes with the kidneys. you know, the other shortness to the, so Down syndrome markers that we used to look for. And I, I feel bad Down syndrome gets focused on, but I think it's because it's common. Yeah. And um, it was easy. It is easy to miss on ultrasound. A lot of babies with Down syndrome will have completely normal ultrasounds. Really? Yeah. Because they, you know, only about half have a heart defect and that's the most reliable thing we can see. Oh, I was, that was my next question. What would be the biggest Down syndrome markers then? Yep. So that nuchal translucency is a big one that came out right as I was like starting as a genetic counselor. And that's the back of the neck, the back of the neck, that measurement. So we knew it was there and it used to, you know, when it's very large, it's something called a cystic hygroma. That's, um, has a lot of other issues. Um, but in the early two thousands, they kind of figured out based on the thickness of the measurement, they came out with norms. So for each gestational age in that 11 to 13 weeks, 
what's the norm, and then they would combine it with blood work in the first trimester, and that would give us our risk for Down syndrome. And that one gave us like a 90% detection rate. Um, but it doesn't flip to, so with those old tests, a high risk would be, you know, positive result would be a risk of one in 270 or greater. Okay, so, which is the risk at 35 for a baby having Down syndrome. And women who were 35 or older were automatically offered CBS or amniocentesis. Okay, okay. So rationale for old testing was if a 25 year old takes a blood test and it says her risk for Down syndrome is the same as a 40 year old, well then that 25 year old should get the same options. Okay. So it was only saying, you know, risk was increased to a certain number. So it would still be a low number. You know, the highest it would be would be one out of five, um, you know, which would be a 80% chance it's normal. And that would be the high. So they were almost always wrong. So the old blood tests were almost always wrong. The new blood test is almost always right when it's a true positive. Not the atypicals, but the true positives. It's so interesting that the ultrasound could be normal, like just completely yeah. normal. Yeah. And that's why there's so much, you know, I think historical focus on trying to do blood tests for Down syndrome and to, you know, adjust risk is because the ultrasound, yeah. It, half the time it's normal. So there's these little markers that would increase risk or decrease risk if they're not there. But really it's not something like a trisomy 13 or 18, we should almost never miss on ultrasound. Wow. That's so crazy. So yeah. could, so with the blood work for down syndrome though, that isn't that like 90% accurate? The new one is, yes. So the new ones, the cell-free DNA will detect about 99% of babies that have Down syndrome. So meaning if a pregnancy has Down syndrome, it will come back positive 99% of the time. But what it also does much better than the old tests is if you get a positive, it's a 99% chance it's going to be a positive. Okay. Okay. Got a positive, it would give you the risk. So sometimes the risk would be one in 200 that's actually a positive. Sometimes it would be one in five that it's actually a positive, but that's the highest it would ever be is one out of five. Wow. Okay. So it would give you like an individualized chance that it's actually a true positive. So, I mean, it would be safe to say that if you did the blood work and you had normal blood work, you, like you should, you could be okay with sticking with that. Right. But then, so what would happen is people would come in with like, let's say one out of 500 on their blood work, which is a low risk result. Um, and then we would do an ultrasound and they would see multiple markers. Well, now that one in 500 could go up to a one in 50. And okay. then they say, oh, well, if it's one in 50, I feel like it's worth the risk of amniocentesis to find out. And then okay. they would thesis because we didn't, now those people would do a cell-free DNA. So they would do a blood test that has no risk for miscarriage, but is almost as accurate for Down syndrome as the amniocentesis. So if that doctor, yeah, felt like the risk was rising, they would rec then recommend the amnio. Right, right. So anyone whose risk was increased would be offered the option of the amnio. Gotcha. Because risk associated with amnio, it's always an option. Like it can be as high as it wants. No one should ever say you have to have an amnio because 
you could lose the baby. So if you want to know, that's the way to find out before a baby's here. Okay. And then, so this bright spot that we found on this baby's heart, do you want to like explain that? Because you explained it so well to me, but I feel like I don't know how to explain it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's normal most of the time. So it's just this, they think it's the, this papillary muscle. So this muscle that's in the heart that just for whatever reason is sometimes shows up brighter in some babies than others. So what I usually say, and I can't remember if this is what I said, but if you have a hundred women carrying a baby with down syndrome, so, so I said, yeah. Um, and they come in, well, if you have a hundred baby carrying hundred women carrying a baby that does not have down syndrome, about 10 of them, we'll see that bright spot. Okay. Um, and their baby does not have Down syndrome. If you have 100 women carrying a baby that does have Down syndrome, 11 of them will have a bright spot. So it's so just it, slightly more common. It like crazy. slightly, yeah. Where like the kidneys, let's, and this is not exact, but that, you know, those dilated kidneys in that same scenario, if you have 10 normal babies that have, or babies without Down syndrome that have it, probably uh, 20 with down syndrome would have that dilated kidneys. So it's a little right, bit, so it's more a little common. bit more, right? So the bright spot in the heart has the lowest association. Cause when I was in there and they were kind of telling me about it, but which it was so funny. I knew she kept going over this one spot, this one yeah. spot. And I was, you don't understand how mad I was at myself. Like I was so close to saying something and yeah. asking, but I was just like sitting there and I was laying there and it had been so long. And I'm just like, let me just not say anything to prolong that. <laughs> back or something. Probably wouldn't but have been I, able to see anyway. I knew that they were doing something over there and she just was like very like wishy-washy about it until the doctor came in or whatever. But when they finally like tried to explain to me, they were like two of the, the nurse or the ultrasound tech and the doctor were both like literally both of my kids have it. Yeah. Mine had it. CJ had it. Yep. And I was a wreck though, because I didn't have cell-free DNA and I knew like, it's when, you know, like your, your brain knows it, but your heart doesn't. Right. So I, if I was telling myself, or if I was telling somebody else, my same situation at that time, I would have been like, don't worry at all. My blood test was like one in 10,000 for down syndrome. So it brought it up to like one out of 8,000 that he had it. I wasn't, I would not do an amnio. But I was so nervous when he was born. The first thing I asked the doctor was, does he have Down syndrome? And she was like, why are you asking me that? <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt. That's why I left there. And they were literally, the doctor took me by my arms and was like, please don't leave here nervous. Everything is fine. And I was like, yeah, okay. So then yeah. I got in my car and I immediately <laughs> called you. And I was like, I just don't understand. I know. I really wish when people have had normal cell-free that we didn't tell them about the bright spot anymore because it is so common. We probably see, I don't know, five, six of them a day. um, And it's also looking, you know, there, so the, the, it's supposed to show brighter than bone or equal to, or as bright as the bone. So that's the other thing. And that's why they kind of go over it a bunch of times. I think the sonographer is like, can I make it normal? (laughs) Yes. If they keep looking and they're like, it's as bright as the bone, then they got to call it. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is, yeah, that's so crazy. I mean, and then like for me with this pregnancy, like it just really didn't ever stop. Like, do you remember when I called you about the Jeanette, the gender thing? Yeah. <laughs> I had did a whole episode about that. People were dying about <laughs> this gender where I call you and I'm like, 
I got the gender. This, I told you how the Walmart lady with the cake just like told me in the store. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to cut this at home with my husband <laughs> and my daughter and please don't tell me. And she was like, oh God, there is pink frosting. And I'm like, why would she do that? It was, I don't know. <laughs> to this day, I'm thinking like, did she do it to piss me off? Did she do it? Like, I, I just, I don't know. I don't um, know. People are but, crazy. Yeah. So then I'm like sitting there thinking like, but I had that like 13 week or 12 week and, and that ultrasound tech, she was like, don't go buy clothes. But she's like, I would bet that this is a boy. So I had it in my head that it was a boy. And then I find out it's a girl. So I'm like, my blood work is never right. So let me just, <laughs> whatever. And then you were so funny. Cause you're like, oh my God, your ultrasound tech. She's like, you were like, out of anybody, I would be like, no, believe the blood work. <laughs> but because it was. Cause you had honor, right? Yes. And she yeah. you were like, she's the most seasoned. Like, I don't. Yeah, she's good. And she, um, and yeah, usually they don't say something in the first trimester if they're really not sure. And so I told her and I went to look at the, I can't remember if I told you this, that I was like, can you look at the picture? She was like, I don't take pictures of the gender that early. Cause I know it's never right. Like <laughs> not, no, it's never, but she was like, we don't document gender. She's like, I might tell people like, oh, I think it's probably a boy, but don't like, I'm not Remember sure I sent you the picture. She took a picture of whatever it was. And she yeah. was like, she goes, see, and I sent you the picture. Cause she, yeah. she pointed to it and she was like, she goes, you see this right here? She's like, that cannot be a girl. She's like, I don't think that's a girl. And I was like, okay. And then like, I really wanted a girl from the beginning, like just to give yeah. my daughter a sister. And like, I just yeah. really wanted another girl. And so did my husband. So when I found out it was a boy, I was like, okay, like at least or what I thought I was like, okay, yeah. I'm on board with the boy. I'm like, all right, I just let, it's fine. We'll like, we'll get used to this. It's a boy. Like, you know, yeah, cool. it's a boy. Like I'm, I'm never like disappointed about gender, like, or anything right. like that, but I was like, okay, well, it's a boy. Let's like, soak <laughs> that. Um, but oh my gosh, what a whirlwind. So yeah, now I'm just like, all right, what's next. Now yeah. on ultrasound though, it looked when you went in the second trimester, they were like, definite girl oh this is a full-blown girl it's a yeah, complete so cheeseburger down there yep <laughs> <laughs> there are no boy parts floating around nope nothing she's flat as a pancake <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, he's all, yeah so but she was so sweet I don't know if I told you but when I had went the last time I think like a couple weeks ago or whatever she was like Mackenzie she like pulled pulled down her she's like um it's me like blah blah and I was like oh my god she's like you're not mad I was like oh no not at all <laughs> she's so nice I love her she is so cute and it was but yeah. I think I had probably tried to pull it out of her a little bit too so like yeah. we were both just like in there having a good time together so I think that like whatever I don't know yeah. but it was so funny I was like of yeah. course this would happen to me <laughs> um but people were dying about that in the last episode that I did because I talked all about it before I announced her gender on social media <laughs> uh, and people just ate it up. So that was so funny too. Um, I did want to ask you, um, what are some, you know, common misconceptions that you face um, while we have like our last couple? Yeah, sure. Um that you've seen or you have to deal with or like what do you what do you feel like you're always saying to people like no 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 like that's not yeah yeah I think when people say I've had genetic testing they always and this goes for providers and patients equally I think 
for patients, it's very confusing because there's so much genetic testing and people don't know what they've had. And providers are kind of, some are very up to date on what they're doing. And they understand that one test looks for chromosomes. One test is looking at mom to see if she carries things, you know, so during pregnancy, there are a lot of options for testing. And I think people don't always understand what they've had or understand what they're ordering from the provider side of it. Um, and the other thing I think is the people, and now it's kind of the reverse, you know, that people will have the blood work and if it comes back high risk, they're like, oh, I talked to my friend and she said, it's almost always wrong. And that's the old blood work. Um, so mm -hmm. kind of, cause it did used to be that way. Um, so you know, you're still kind of coming out of that, like, yeah. Um, so you have to feel bad that you have to you know, tell people, no, actually it probably is right. Um, I have had them be wrong. So they are not perfect by any means. Um, but they're usually right, unfortunately. Okay. Um, and, but I think, you know, most people, genetics is much more in the news now. It's much, there's a lot more awareness about genetics and, um, so I think people are more well-informed than they used to be. And Google, as much as we make fun of Dr. Google, he's helpful or she's helpful. You know, people come in often a lot more educated than they used to because um, there's more access out there. I know a family very well. Um, I actually did my like senior project in high school on a family that two of her kids had cystic fibrosis. Right. And they're older now. And so that, I think one of them, the older one is like 22 and the other one's like 19 or something like that. Um, but back when they were like one and two and three and, you know, all that, I mean, it was a totally different ball game with that. And um, I remember like, I went to the CCMC with them all the time and I would interview their doctors. Like I've always been like super interested in, in this stuff. I mean, um, if I wasn't in the marketing field and all that stuff, <laughs> influencing stuff, I mean, I think it's just absolutely fascinating what you do. And I think it's, you know, great work too, because you do it so well. I have to just say, I mean, you've been such a comfort to me and that's something I wanted to tell you at the end, but you've been <laughs> so helpful and comforting and, um, even comforting when I was like, when I didn't necessarily, like I wasn't necessarily, in a place to probably be comforted. You remember when we were kind of like going through all the options and it was, you were just like, all right, well, like I'll, you know, we'll have to like be in touch and that's not comforting at all. But um, <laughs> you've been so great. So I think what you do is just like, is amazing work. But um, I remember them saying that it was just such a phenomenon that she had two kids with cystic fibrosis. So and this is where her doctor should know. So you're like one of, there's a few people I've heard this story from. So cystic fibrosis is recessive, okay? So that means when a person has it, both their parents are carriers. So for that couple, every time they have a baby, it's 25% chance that that baby's gonna have, that a baby's gonna have it. So it is very common for sib siblings to have it because both parents carry it. So it always scares me a little that on the first baby, I don't know how old their kids are. So, you know, we might not have been doing prenatal testing and people don't know, but after they've had a child diagnosed with it, it's scary that nobody educated them that the next baby has a 25% chance. And that's, that's high. 
that's high for that's yeah about as high as we get for genetics unless a person like so dominant conditions if a mom has it or a dad has it it's 50 50 a child will have it but those people know that they have so for example yeah. like um uh, like, you know dwarfism so like peter yes. dinkler so he has something called achondroplasia so for every child every time he has a child it's 50 50 they're going to have it okay but dominant conditions you can't carry them you either have them or you don't but recessive conditions um so when a gene is recessive you only need one copy working to be healthy so you can be a carrier and have most people have no idea um because the other gene is doing the job and so you have no signs of being a carrier but wow. if two carry the same thing then a baby gets two that don't work and then they have whatever the condition is so when an individual has cystic fibrosis we know both their parents are carriers and we know every other child has a 25% chance. That's why like if one of my tests came back in the beginning and I was some like I was a carrier then you'd test my husband. Exactly. And if he's not a carrier then we're not really worried. Baby could be a carrier but carriers don't it doesn't affect them. Then it would just affect her when she's wanting to have kids or whatever. Right, exactly. Exactly. Oh. So, you know, you can be, a, carriers can go through families forever. We all carry something. Um, but unless your partner carries the same thing, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. Okay, wait, one more. Well, two more questions before we okay. have to wrap up. But one of them, it may be really stupid. Um, I know genetics, okay. counselor genetics, but I'm just wondering about those babies that maybe like have like alcoholism or fetal alcohol. Yeah. What, where do they go to be monitored? They usually will end up with a geneticist too. So oh. um, for people who like human genetics, you can, there are what we call medical geneticists. So there are physicians that um, most of them go on to specialize in pediatrics and then do a fellowship in genetics. Um, but they end up seeing like babies with fetal alcohol syndrome or um, there's some like congenital infections that they can end up seeing those babies and be followed. But fetal alcohol syndrome is probably one of the main ones that, and cerebral palsy that aren't really genetic, um, wow. but we'll often see a geneticist as a point person to kind of help figure out what they need because okay. they'll need services a lot of times. Yeah. They'll need yeah. to be like monitored the whole time. I'm sure just as, you know, right. Anybody right. else on there? The baby with it is going to need early intervention and therapies and, you know, so helping the parents navigate that. A lot of times those babies will be, uh, so I used to do pediatrics and sometimes those babies will be in like uh, the foster system. Oh, okay. So you'll be seeing the foster parent or that kind of thing while the biological parent, you know, gets himself. Okay. To, not always that way, but a lot of times fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, yeah. Cause how can you really, can you, how can you get that if you're not abusing? You can't. I know. I mean, they say we don't know how much alcohol is okay, but the assumption is babies with full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome, they were exposed to a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know there wasn't like a specific, like if you have it, you, that. So people do try to well, that's why they tell you not to drink at all during pregnancy because you can have what's so fetal alcohol syndrome. And don't quote me on any of this because it's been a long time, but there are certain criteria. So somebody with fetal alcohol syndrome will like meet the majority of those criteria. But then you can have fetal alcohol effects, 
where they expect, so, you know, you're not checking off all the boxes on the syndrome, but that it seems like that child has a lot of those concerns due to alcohol exposure during pregnancy. So that's why they just avoid it entirely because we don't know how much is too much or when is the worst time and when is it safe? There is no, you know, and no one's going to do a study. You can't really say, try this and see what happens to the baby. Yes. God, no. (laughs) This just, you know, recommendation is just avoid it. You do a bottle a week and I'll do yeah. a half bottle. <laughs> we'll see what happens to our babies. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. Medication. Well, yeah. I have one more question for you sure. before we wrap up. It's just kind of what, if you had, if you could give any advice to a mom that is on their way to see a counselor, like you, a genetics counselor, or possibly has to see one or is seeing one, you know, what are, what's some advice maybe that coming from you that you could, you could give out? Yeah. Um, I know it's hard Yeah, not to be nervous, which I know is hard to say, because sometimes it's a situation where people are very nervous. You know, I see people for lots of different reasons. Um, but in general, you know, my job is to help my patient and to be the person to help them navigate whatever the scenario is. And so to just come in open-minded and, um, you know, kind of willing to hear what there is to say and what options there are. I think sometimes people think when they go to genetics, I'm going to tell them they have to have an amnio. They, you know, I think people sometimes think termination is my goal and that is absolutely not the case. And it's not the case for, I don't think any genetic counselor, but we get that kind of a wrap as well. Um, yeah, yeah most of the time you're, you know, we are, we are there to help you through whatever the situation is. And obviously when it's a scary or heightened situation, the patient's going to be much more nervous. But I think a lot of times people get referred for family history of something and they're very nervous about it. And I'm like, no, it's probably all going to be fine. Don't worry. You know? Yeah. But that's um, a really good point. I mean, some people might, there might be this stigma attached to just because you do sometimes on occasion offer termination or the risk of miscarriage when it comes to amnio or CVS or what have you, um, doesn't mean that that's what you, what a counselor like you would be pushing or, you know, really like that being the first thing. So I think that's such good advice kind of just coming in to, I know it's so hard to say these words, (laughs) but like, almost like you kind of have a job to do of like this, like the circumstances are what they are and to like hear them. And to you, like, right as a mom, like we have to make all these decisions half the time. Like, I don't like who the heck put me in charge of like picking out what she does every day. Like, I don't want to. Like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in my so is, like for genetic counseling, the, the biggest thing behind it is being non-directive. So my job is not to say, this is what you need to do. This is what you should do. My job is to say, here are the facts of your situation. Here are the choices you have in front of you. Whatever you choose, I will support and help get you to where you need to be. You know, I so not to you. Around, huh? I, was like, I remember saying to you, I was like, what would you do? Would you do the amnia? Like, what would you do? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can't make decisions. I can't either. That's why I'm in a job where like, well, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. It's up to you. But that's the thing nobody knows. People come in and think, oh, I would definitely, you know, here's what I would do in this given situation. But then when they're actually faced with it, 
you know, everybody's different. You never know what yeah. you might do. Yeah, you re- you really don't know what you would do. Yeah. I think that's such yeah. a good point to to say too. And you yeah. don't have to be ashamed of, of of you know which direction you would ever go in if you felt that in the moment because again, you just you don't know unless you're faced with it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Ball game like, at that point. Free zone, whatever. And you know, some people. It's funny. There are. Um, I have people that babies have lethal anomalies and they choose to continue, um, which is just as much their choice as choosing to terminate. And sometimes I feel like outsiders can't wrap their head around that people would continue when they know the baby's not going to survive. And I'm like, well, that woman, that mom deserves just as much support, if not more than any other person that chooses otherwise, because she's knowingly putting herself She's trying to give this baby as much life as she can, however long or short that might be. And that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, when people choose, like, again, if that's what she chooses, I am behind her as much as if she chose not to. That's so amazing. What you must see some phenomenal. Situation. Yeah. There are people who just inspire you. You're like, Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you never know what you might do in a situation, but yeah, sometimes people are amazing. Wow. Well, I want to thank you again so much for coming on. I, you've been such a help to me in this pregnancy. Um, I didn't have you with my, with my daughter, but, um, I really don't know like the headspace that I would be in if I didn't get to talk to you and just call you (laughs) up and you'd be like, okay, like willing to talk to me. I feel like you spent so much time listening to my like back and forths and ums and buts and it's just been such a true blessing, like having you on my team for this. And I want to thank you so much for that. Oh, so sweet. It's been a pleasure working with you. I hope you never need me again, but I um, hope I never need you again. <laughs> feel free to share baby pictures. We always will take those. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. thousand percent. Well, um, I'm not sure if you're on anywhere that you want. Normally, like some people that I have on, I'll say at the end, like, do you want to plug yourself? Tell us where we can find you. But if you're not on anything, then that. <laughs> doesn't really pertain to you. So, um, I am so happy. I, I'm going to share this episode with you. I'll, um, send you the link to it and, you know, we can, you can share it or listen to it. <laughs> however you want. Um, but I'm sure the, the viewer, the listeners are going to really love it. So I'm excited to share it. All right. Well, best of luck with everything. And again, thanks so much for thinking of me. You're so sweet. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate <laughs> it so much. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Okay, guys, I want to take this time to introduce a few of our newest sponsors to the 20-something mom podcast, Marble and Granite out of Milford, Connecticut, Ambiance Stone out of Berlin, Connecticut, and the well-known brand Vidara Quartz. If you've been following along on social media with our kitchen renovations, you'll know that we've worked with these three companies to build a kitchen we can be really proud of. We're so excited to partner up with these companies. And if you're looking to renovate your kitchen, your bathroom, any countertops, fireplace, Ambiance Stone is a great place to start. They're a full-service countertop installation and fabrication company. Also, Marble and Granite is a natural and engineered distribution center and showroom. So they can show you endless, endless slabs of different marbles, granites, quartz, We ended up going with Vidara Quartz, so that's what we recommend because we have been in love with it since we've been using it in a high-functioning kitchen with toddlers and kids and all that. I mean, 
there's just it's so low maintenance so it's perfect for our family well thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of the 20 something mom i'm your host mackenzie frank and it was really